So here now the the very word of God as it is given to us, both in Mark 11, reading the 7th through the 11th verses, and then from Zechariah, reading the 9th through the 12th verses of chapter 9. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. When he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Turn to Zechariah 9. We're going to read the ninth through the twelfth verses. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. And may the Lord bless those two passages and all of those that we will study this morning to his glory, to our understanding. Let's ask him for that. Father, we're going to spend all morning in your word. And I pray that you will give us all focus as we move through that word and try to piece it together and see the absolute brilliance that your Holy Spirit has woven through your word from one end of it to the next, telling us about the Messiah that you would send, who would bring peace, who would accomplish peace, who would conquer the things that stood in the way of peace and establish a kingdom, the kingdom of peace. We will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as is traditional on Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. And I just read you the passages from Mark and then from uh, going back to Zechariah, where Jesus makes this entry into Jerusalem. Now, one might ask the question, well, what is so triumphal about this triumphal entry? In other words, yes, people are yelling and screaming as they go in, and they're they're very excited, but before the week's out, they're going to turn on him, and many of the same people who are now saying Hosanna will, before the week is out, say, crucify him, and let his death be upon our children. And so therefore, we, we, we wonder, where exactly is the triumph here? Well, that's what I hope to show you this morning. And in fact, I hope to show you that this is a much greater, a much more expansive triumph than meets the eye when we just read this text. In fact, I want to talk about the king of peace establishing the kingdom of peace and exactly what that means, what it means for redemptive history and what it means for us. And towards that end, I think I need to, so, to find some terms real quickly before we get started. First of all is what I mean by peace, because our common understanding of peace is not exactly what the Bible talks about when it talks about peace. Because when we talk about peace, we really are talking about the absence of conflict. A nation that is not at war is considered to be at peace. If you don't have conflict or contention or argument or violence in your life, sometimes we say we are at peace. It really talks about just this feeling of well-being. Well, that's not really the way we're going to use the word peace this morning because peace in the, in the context that we're using it in means one thing, and that is peace with God, shalom. 
It, it, it means something that is virtually impossible if you look at it from a human standpoint. How am I going to have peace with a perfect and a holy God who cannot bear to look upon iniquity and I'm covered with it? How is there going to be peace between the two of us? And so therefore, it's, it's, if you're going to have peace and if you're going to have a kingdom of peace, you're going to have a kingdom where there's a reconciliation and there's peace with God. The second thing that I think I need to define is what I mean by kingdom, because we have worldly kingdoms, but there are three things that I, I, I kind of want to bring out as far as what a kingdom is, and especially what it is in Scripture. First of all, a kingdom has a king, and that king is absolutely sovereign. He makes all of the rules and all of the choices. Now, you can see why in a fallen world, that kingdoms quite often go bad because fallen men tend to be dictatorial when they have that much power. But if God is the king and he's a benevolent dictator, well, then you have the best of all situations. The second thing about a kingdom is the kingdom has subjects, those over whom the king has sovereign rule. And those subjects are to be subservient and submissive and obedient to their king. And the third thing about a kingdom is that there is at least some concept of dominion. Now, in earthly kingdoms, that's spatial or geographic. There's an area over which the king exercises complete sovereign control. But when we start talking about spiritual kingdoms, as we are going to talk about this morning, not only is it spatial, not only is it an area, but it is also a kingdom that is or a dominion over the souls of men and women, over the souls of humanity. Now, all three of those are going together to talk about the kingdom, the idea of peace. Hopefully you understand it's a kingdom at peace with God, with a sovereign ruler and subjects who are obedient to that ruler. And, of course, souls that are within that great dominion. Now, one last definition I want to give you before we get started, because we have an awful lot of text to go through this morning. And that is um, what I mean by a living parable. And that's the way that we're going to look at the triumphal entry this morning, as a living parable. Now, when I say a living parable, I don't necessarily mean that it has to fit within the confines of what a parable is. Because to me, a living parable is any story that is true historically, but that also has deep meaning figuratively or symbolically. Now, let me emphasize, as I always do when we talk about living parables, that we are not questioning the historicity of this story. Jesus really entered Jerusalem, and he really entered on the way, in the way that the Gospels tell us. But there's something deeper, and it's that deeper, it's that figurative sense that Jesus is entering Jerusalem at that time in that way. That I want to bring out this morning. Now with that said. Let me let's go back. And let's just talk a little bit. About what we're going to do this morning. Um, as you notice. There was more than one. Um, scripture reference. Well, it doesn't uh, mean that that's all that we're going to do. Actually, there could have been about a dozen scripture references this morning. So let me, let me just tell you this. I, I, I hope you brought your Bibles. If you didn't bring your Bible, you're going to you need to take one out of the pew rack in front of you. Because we're going to do a power walk through scripture. So in other words, let's do some finger exercises. Get ready to turn those pages. Because that's what we're going to do. We're going to whip through it. I'm going to go about five or six of the passages we're actually going to turn to as I, as I try to piece something together. Now listen to me, please. This is not the morning to go asleep. This is not the morning that you can just simply sit there and daydream. Or if you miss it, you're going to miss it. Because we're going to go way back, we're going to run through some of the prophets, we're going to come and we're going to talk about multiple um, triumphal entries. We're not, this is not the only one. There's more than one. And they need to all be pieced together in, for, in order for us to understand this. So let's start by turning back to the prophecy of Daniel, the second chapter of Daniel. Now as you're turning back there, let me um, sort of preface this a, a little bit. 
Uh, about 1,500 years ago or so, a man, a great uh, theologian named uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, wrote a book. And that book he called The City of God. And in that book, he traced all the way from Cain on down two cities, a city of man and a city of God, and the tension that exists between them. Well, of course, Cain named his first city after his son, and then there was the kingdom of Babel, and Babylon, and Egypt, and Greece, and Persia, and Rome. Right on down to the time of Jesus, there have been these kingdoms of men. Well, the only real kingdom that was sort of a prototypical kingdom of the one we're going to talk about, as far as the Israelites were concerned, was the kingdom of David and sort of the residual of that that occurred during Solomon's time. And, and, and that was an expansive kingdom, and you're going to see that referenced on several occasions this morning, uh, a, a kingdom that is like the kingdom of David. Well, that was a kingdom of, of, of man. But long ago, even after David had established that kingdom, the prophets began to tell us about another kingdom, a kingdom that was not like the kingdoms that human beings put together. And that's why we're going back to Daniel, because Daniel tells us about just such a kingdom. And I'm not going to go deeply into the story. I assume that most of you know that Daniel is a young man that was kidnapped from Jerusalem Early on, probably in the first Babylonian um, exile, probably around 605 B.C., he was taken to Babylon. He was indoctrinated with the religion and education and language and the occult of Babylon. And he was made into a wise man, but he never, ever lost his love for God. And then Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, had a dream, and it greatly troubled him. And so he asked all of his wise men to interpret it, but he was kind of tired of these guys because he kind of felt that they were sort of doing smoke and mirrors. So he said, if you're so connected with your gods, then you tell me what the content of my dream is, and then you interpret it. Well, of course, no one could except Daniel because Daniel was the only one whose God is really God. And so God revealed this amazing dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of a great statue with four different kinds of metal making it up. There was gold and then silver and then bronze and of course the feet were iron mixed with clay. And so Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar all about these great kingdoms. We'll see later that they are kingdoms. But then at the end of his explanation, he says this. Look in the 34th verse of the second chapter. Daniel talking to Nebuchadnezzar says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that there's not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Well, we know who that stone is, don't we? Uh, it's the stone that Psalmist in 118 talks about. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's Jesus. And this is the very kingdom that I'm talking about that Daniel sees. Now, that's when he told Nebuchadnezzar what he had dreamed. He goes on and he interprets that dream. And here's what he does. Jump down to the 44th verse. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Now, I know that I'm trying to tell you that this is sort of talking about a kingdom of peace. And there's an awful lot of breaking and, and, and trampling and, and stuff going on here. Uh, okay? So let me explain something. We, we have our first principle that, that is going to be important all the way through this to the very end. So I hope that you get it. And the principle is simply this. If you are going to establish or if one is going to establish a kingdom of peace... 
then before that peace can be had, those things that are interfering or keeping that peace away must be destroyed. So there is a destruction that occurs in the establishment of peace. And that's exactly what Daniel is showing. There's going to be a destruction of all these these. Uh, these things that are going to come between the kingdom of peace and the peace that would be won. Now, with that said, turn over to, I actually turn back a little bit. We're going to Isaiah. And I'm going to read the same passage that I read earlier from Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, we're going to start in the second verse, and I'm just going to clarify some of the things that Daniel has just told us. Now, of course, Isaiah, we know, was writing somewhere between 80 and 100 years prior to Daniel. But we're going to see that with prophets, it doesn't matter whether it's before or after because God is showing them things in history. Notice, first of all, the second verse of chapter 9 of Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone or has shined. Now, it, it, it bring, begins to bring it into the context of a spiritual awakening, of a knowledge of a, of a people who are trapped in darkness. And of course, we, we know that darkness and sin are almost simultaneous in Scripture. So, so, so Isaiah starts bringing another dimension onto this a little bit that is a spiritual kingdom that we're talking about. Now, jump down to the fifth verse here and let's read that from Isaiah 9, 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult... And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That virtually is repeating what Daniel just told us. These are the implements of war. These are the implements that come into play when two nations are at enmity with each other. There are soldiers and tramping and bloody clothes because of the deaths that have occurred. Well, Isaiah is saying that when this kingdom comes, this kingdom of peace, the things that lead to... To enmity, the things that keep that peace at bay are going to be destroyed and burned in the fire, just like what Daniel said. Now, Isaiah is going to give us a little bit more of a clue about how this is going to come about. There's going to be a kingdom, and now we're going to see a king. And instead of just referring to him as a stone, now it's a child. And the whole idea of humility begins to come into it. Look at the sixth verse. For to us... A child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, you might as well say kingdom, of the increase of that kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. There is so much wrapped up in there. But let me just bring your attention to a few of these things. First of all, as I just mentioned, notice the burning of the tramping boot and the bloody clothes that the implements of war are going to be destroyed. The thing that stands between peace and the settlement of peace are going to be eliminated so that peace can 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 come about. We also learn of the humility of this king. Because when you talk about a child in this sense, you start talking about someone who is infinitely or, or completely humble. We also notice that peace is the objective. That there is going to be not only is the prince of peace, but as his kingdom grows, it will be a kingdom that brings about peace that will know no end. And then lastly... We see that it's going to be a kingdom kind of like David's kingdom, but actually more like Daniel's kingdom. It's going to have some of the attributes of David's kingdom, but it's going to look a lot more like the, the, the supernatural, the spiritual kingdom that is going to cover the whole world that Daniel talked about. We, we see a very close correlation between these two prophets. 
Now, go forward to Zechariah. Because Zechariah is the great prophet who puts this in in its perspective. If you have trouble finding Zechariah, go to the end of the Old Testament and go back a book. It's between Haggai and Malachi. Great messianic prophecy. We're going to be in the ninth chapter, starting in the ninth verse. Now, what has happened by now is this is about 150 years after Isaiah, about 70 years. We know it's 70 years after Daniel wrote that pretty close because the prophet Jeremiah told us that when 70 years are completed for Babylon, the people would return to um, to Israel. And so the people have come back to Israel. So Zechariah is actually writing from um, Palestine, where they have returned. Now, both Haggai and Zechariah, they sort of have a task. It's their job to put a fire under the children of Israel to rebuild the temple. First thing they did was lay the foundation and make an altar, but then they sort of have been um, dragging their feet, if you will, about restoring that temple. But God wants it restored, and these two great prophets are, that's really their primary task. But as is the case with all prophets, part of what they see is right in front of them, and part of what they see is deep in the future. And this is exactly what Zechariah sees. And this, as we read earlier, these are the famous verses that are so closely associated with the triumphal entry. Let's start in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, as we will get to in a moment, I'm not going to talk about the significance of that animal and this entry in Jerusalem until we get to Mark, until we actually are talking about the triumphal entry. But this is hugely significant because Zechariah says there's going to come a time when the king that you're waiting for is going to come. Now, like Isaiah told us, he's going to be humble. (laughs) And he's going to be so humble, he's going to be riding on the back of a beast of burden when... He enters the town. Let's continue in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, there's several things I want you to notice about that particular verse. Once again, notice the battle imagery. Notice that the things, the implements of war are going to be destroyed because he's talking about cutting off chariots and war horses and battle bows. These are all going to be thrown into the fire, as Isaiah would have put it, and and destroyed so that peace can result. Now, once again, brothers and sisters, it is clearly stated here that the mission of the king who rides the donkey into the city of Jerusalem, he's on a mission of peace. Now, please remember what we're talking about when we say peace. We're not talking about absence of conflict. They're going to kill him before the week is out. What he's talking about is relationship with God. He's talking about peace, shalom with God. And Zechariah is seeing this all these years in advance. Also notice the expansiveness of the dominion. We talked about a dominion as being part of a kingdom. Notice that it's not just Palestine. It's not just Jerusalem. It is from sea to sea. It is from the river to the ends of the earth. Those are Hebraisms talking about a universal kingdom. Universal spatially. It doesn't mean every single person within those geographic regions are going to be in the kingdom. But it means that no longer will it be isolated just to the people in Jerusalem or in Israel. It is going to be spread out to the entire world. And so we see a great expansiveness of that kingdom. And hopefully you're beginning to get an idea of what the kingdom of peace looks like. But let's go on and read in the 11th verse. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. 
Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Brothers and sisters, I wish I had another hour or two to talk about this. I'm actually even thinking about doing this on on Easter Sunday morning because this is so, so profound. But let me just point out a, a, a couple of things about it. This is the language of restoration. This is the language of release. Prisoners are in the darkness. They are bound by something. And there's going to be a release as they are brought out of the darkness into a marvelous light. You can already begin to see the symbolism of that. But notice what he says in the 11th verse. As for you also because of the blood of my covenant with you. The blood of the covenant, brothers and sisters, is the way that this peace is going to be won. There are exactly three places in Scripture where this is used, blood of the covenant. One of them is here, obviously. The other one is when Moses ratifies the covenant, the Mosaic covenant with the people. We read this. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And that covenant that God made with his people at that time, coming down on Mount Sinai, this is my law. This is the, these are the feast days. Here's the tabernacle. Here's how you will be atoned for. And we cut the covenant. That's what the word covenant means in Hebrew. It means to cut something. And we have that great covenant of Abraham where we saw all of those carcasses, those animals split in two as God walked through it twice to ratify that covenant. And so here the whole context of how humanity will be atoned for before a holy God is brought into the ratification of the blood of the covenant. Now there's only one other place in all of scripture where this is used. And if that was the end of it, we might have a little bit of a problem understanding how this relates. But Jesus, on the night that he had the the institution of the Lord's Supper as a sacrament with his brothers at at that great Last Supper. And Mark, we, we read, he says this, this is my blood of the covenant that is poured out for many. In other words, even Zechariah is pointing us to the fact That when the prince of peace or when the king of peace enters into the city to win the peace that is to be there. It will be through the blood of the covenant. The new covenant and not the blood of bulls and goats. But the blood of Jesus. As Hebrews makes it very, very clear that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the kind of kingdom of peace and this begins to piece together. The kind of peace we're talking about. Now you might think from here we go directly to Mark and to the triumphal entry. But I'm trying to make the case this morning that the triumphal entry into Jerusalem is not the only triumphal entry that we should look at. In fact, there is another triumphal entry that is just extraordinary. And we need to make sure that we see it as such. Turn, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke. That should be very familiar to you. The first chapter. And the second chapter, they usually are pretty close to each other, sometimes on the same page. Now, as you're turning there, let me explain what we're seeing. And this is the nativity story of Jesus. And what's so important about this is what we are seeing is God enter space and time. This is the most extraordinary triumphal entry. Because as Paul puts it in Philippians Jesus, he was talking about, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most extraordinary example of humiliation that we have, in fact, this is the doctrine of humiliation, is when... When God takes on the attributes of a human being, subtraction by addition, and he walks amongst us in space and time. The entry of God into this world is the most extraordinary 
triumphal entry. And once again, he's not going to come as a full-grown man. He's not going to come in the flower of his youth, if you will. The strength that he has, he is going to come humbly as a child. Another Zechariah, not the prophet Zechariah, but the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, talks about this as he sings a soliloquy to his newborn son. Look in the first chapter of Luke from the 76th verse. He's talking to John the Baptist and he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring shall visit us from on high. I like that word. That's what it means, sunrise. The day spring, the dawn burst. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To give our, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Almost the same words that Isaiah used back in the second verse of his ninth chapter. Drawing the two together, folks, so that you know that when Isaiah is talking about the Messiah, when he is mapping it out, he's talking about the same one that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, has just identified. It is Jesus. And when he enters space and time, it is a glorious, glorious triumphal entry. In fact, the theme of the humility that God takes upon himself that we just have difficulty understanding continues in this nativity narrative. Turn over to the second chapter of Luke, the eighth verse is where we'll start reading. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and Lying in a manger that is so familiar to us that we can almost recite it by a heart. But did you think about this as a triumphal entry? Did you think about this as what it is? God leaving heaven, taking on the attributes of a human, coming to earth on a peace mission. That's what he's here for. That's the reason he has come to win peace for humanity and to make a peace treaty. With God. Oh, brothers and sisters, we see the most amazing scene that happens next. As the angel says his peace to these lowly shepherds, and then all of a sudden, reading from the 13th verse, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with Whom he is pleased, the NIV says, among those upon whom his favor rests. Brothers and sisters, we studied this when we studied this part part of Luke. When, When we are told that the heavenly host appeared... We're not talking a bunch of, about a bunch of roly-poly cherubs peeking out behind the skirts of a feminine um, angel. We are talking about the massive angels of power, any one of which would cause you to fall on your face in absolute fear. And the entire host of the armies of God come spilling out of heaven and make their appearance on this earth for two reasons. One, to herald the coming of God into space and time and to put sin on notice. Yeah, there's going to be a battle. Remember our doctrine. Remember our principle. That in order to establish peace, that which stands in the way of peace must first be destroyed. And this heavenly host has come to tell us that sin and all that it does to stand between a holy God and a sinful man is about to be destroyed. And hopefully that gives you a little bit of a backdrop as far as what it means when Jesus rides into town on a donkey. Let's turn to Mark. 
the 11th chapter. With that context, I like what John MacArthur says sometimes, that's the context, now I start the sermon. Um, that's not the way it is, no. just kidding you. But with that context, that understanding of what is happening and how this is not a random segregated appearance or, or, or event, that this has been wrapped up in, 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 in redemptive history since the very beginning. With that in mind, let's take a look at the triumphal entry through a different set of eyes. Let's go back to the first verse of Mark 11 and get the entire context of this. Then, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Say, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. Underline that, please. The Lord has need of it. And it will send, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. My brother and sister, I just want you to ponder for a moment. Why was it necessary for the Lord to have this donkey? Why didn't he need it? What was it saying? Is it just to fulfill the prophecies of Zechariah in a physical sense? Or is there something more significant? Let's complete this as we see the triumphal entry as Mark gives it in verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. This is the way that they would welcome a dignitary in those days, a king or a great prophet. Uh, Some people thought Jesus was the Messiah, others just a great prophet. We learn from John why we call this Palm Sunday, because he tells us that they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. John actually gives us a little bit, a few more details about this. Apparently, very shortly after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, just over the top of the Mount of Olives, he went into seclusion a little bit to the north and east because he knew that there was timing involved. He knew that the religious leaders wanted to kill him and that if he went back to Jerusalem, that's exactly what would happen. But the time wasn't right. This had been determined and decided before the foundations of the world were laid. And so therefore, when Jesus knew the time was right, when it was the Sunday before the Friday of his crucifixion and the Sunday before the Sunday of his resurrection, he made his way into Jerusalem. Now, there was a huge crowd following him because of the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave. And there was a huge crowd that poured out of Jerusalem. The town was hopping, folks. I mean, it was Passover and pilgrims had come from all over. And what is more, it was the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel it had, it was, was coming to bear right then. And there were a lot of people there looking for the Messiah. And so this huge crowd pours out from behind this other crowd from, from in front, and the other crowd comes from behind, and this is what we read. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. How tragic. It is that the Messiah that they sought, that the king that they waited for, was unknown to them, and they missed it because they were looking for a king on a war horse rather than a king on a donkey. Now, those of you probably already know this, but let me go ahead and flesh it out for you and keep it in the perspective in those days, when a king conquered another nation in war, after the, the peace settlement had been made, he would enter the, the capital city of the country. 
And he would come riding in on a great war horse. War horses were powerful horses that were able to go through battle and not flinch at all the turmoil that was there. On a great war horse, for reasons that I'll express in a moment, I see this as a great white horse followed by his armies. The armies who were responsible for winning that war. Now, what would usually happen is they would make their way into the city and then down the main street to the place of greatest importance in that kingdom. It might be where the Senate met if it was like Rome, or it might be the palace of a king if that was the great spot, or it might be the temple. And so when Jesus comes in, he's not riding on a war horse. He's not coming in in that situation. Rather, he comes in on a donkey. And again, I think most of you already know this. But in those days, when a king rode into a city at which he is in enmity, there is, there's enmity between them. He rides in on a donkey. It's like walking in with a white flag or an olive branch. It is a, a, a recognition of peace. In other words, the king has not come to wage war on that city. The king has come to make peace in that city. He has come to make peace and to find some way that all of the animosity can stop. So Jesus comes in on a donkey representing that he is the king of peace. And he has come to establish a kingdom of peace. And as was the case with a conquering king, he went immediately to the place where the peace was to be announced. The 11th verse of the 11th chapter of of Mark. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. Because you see, brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come to make peace with the people of Jerusalem. He came to make peace with God. And so he went to the place where God came to visit his people. And he stood in that temple ground and he said, I have come as a humble king to make peace, but I claim this place. It is now under my dominion. Now I am the one who brings peace. Oh, what a shame it was that all of the scholars there in Jerusalem, even though they knew the Old Testament so well, they missed this completely. They missed the reason that Jesus had come into the city. And I think that their eyes were cloaked just as the eyes of the disciples were cloaked. But all they would have to do would be to read Isaiah. And Isaiah tells us without question Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Brothers and sisters, you wonder where the triumph is and the triumphal entry? It's here. It's what unbelievers can't comprehend. It's on the cross. It is what Jesus came to do. He came into the city as the king of peace to win peace, not peace with the people, but peace with God. And so he gives the terms of that peace treaty. He's already stated it back in Zechariah. It will be the blood of the covenant. Not someone else's blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats. But my blood. I will go to the cross. These are the terms of my peace treaty. I will go to the cross. I will pay the price for all those who put their trust in you. All of those that you have set aside for salvation. I will win that salvation. I will ransom them from the sin. That keeps them apart. I will destroy that which just destroys peace. I will destroy sin once and for all. That's the triumph of the triumphal entry. The triumph is when God's love and mercy and grace and compassion overcomes our own sinfulness and rebelliousness. 
The triumph is the culmination of God's entire plan of redemption put in place before the foundations of the world. The triumph is when the bride of Christ is purified and presented to his father without sin so that he can have relationship with them. The triumph is in the sacrificial, substitutional atonement of Jesus Christ. Yes, my dear brothers and sisters, he will suffer on that cross, and we know that. We know that the physical suffering was secondary. We know that the real suffering that Jesus went through with those three hours of holy darkness where he took the sins of those he came to save. He who knew no sin became sin for us, and he was hung on a cross as a curse, and God poured his fierce wrath out upon those sins, and he paid the ransom for us. So that we might live. Now the resurrection proves. That Jesus was everything that he said he was. That he did everything that he said he did. But it also proves something else brothers and sisters. It proves that God the father accepted the terms. Of the peace treaty. That the king of peace came to offer. He never would have raised Jesus Christ from the grave if it had not been in acceptance of his sacrifice on your behalf, on my behalf, on our behalf. And so therefore the resurrection proves that peace has been won. Peace that Jesus won for us. Now don't think that we're finished because we're not. There's more triumphal entries that we need to consider. One of them happens just about 40 days after this. When Jesus leaves this world. Because you see, Jesus was not of this world. He was sent by the Father here with a task. The task was to win a peace for those who put their trust in him. When that was done, he prepared his disciples for, his disciples for 40 days. And then in Acts This is what we read. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus left on the clouds. That's how God gets around in scripture is on the clouds. And then he returns to the home from which he came, the triumphant warrior king who accomplished what he came to do, the impossible task of reconciling a holy God and a sinful man. Going back to Daniel, 700, 600 years before, 550 or however long it was before, but nonetheless, Daniel sees it in his vision. In the seventh chapter, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's a triumphal entry, folks. As Jesus returns to heaven, the triumphant warrior king, or as Hebrews puts it, for Christ has entered not into the holy places, made with hands which are copies of the true things. This is right out of Daniel. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You see, when he made the triumphal entry into this world, he had a task that was to win peace for us. When he goes back to the kingdom of God and he's standing at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he has another task. A task that he exercises even now for each one of us who have given our lives to him. Because every time the accuser, Satan, points that long, wicked finger at you. Every time you sin, Satan accuses you and says that is a sin against a holy God. And it demands an eternal punishment. That person belongs in the lake of fire with me. And he's Absolutely right. That's when our intercessor steps forward. And he says, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Not that one. I paid for that sin. 
I hung on the cross for that sin. I am the mediator of the new covenant. And so therefore, I'm just going to remind you that there's no way that a sin can be punished twice. Oh, brothers and sisters, Job longed for this day. As he suffered and he thought that he was contending against God and he didn't realize that the other one, the one at the other end of the spear was Satan himself. This is what he says, talking about God, for he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we can come to trial together. He says, there's no arbiter between us. I might lay his hand on both of us. He's talking about something that was impossible to him. Who can do that? Who could lay his hand on God's shoulder and lay his hands on my shoulder and bring the two of us together? No human being can do that. Only the God man, Jesus Christ, can bring a holy God and a sinful man together in perfect Righteousness. Oh, what a magnificent and wonderful uh, triumphal entry that is. But I'm not through yet. I'm not through. I've got a couple more. Okay. Turn to the book of Revelation, 19th chapter. And start in verse 11. Because, you see, redemptive history is not over yet, folks. The first time that Jesus came, when he made his triumphal entry, it was to win peace with God. And the, and, and, and the terms of, of that peace treaty are laid out before us. It is the blood of Christ on the cross that wins the peace, and he offers it to you for faith. We believe, we give our lives, we give our hearts to Jesus Christ, and it is a free gift. It is mercy and grace, the compassion of God. That is what brings us together with God. But that is not the way that he will come the second time he makes entry into this world. That's what we read in Revelation in the 11th verse. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, what? A white horse. A war horse this time. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. That's the word. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus makes the next triumphal entry, there will be no confusion. No one on earth will not know that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And those who have rejected him and are still rebellious will be so frightened that they will call the mountains to fall upon them rather than to face the radiance of God's glory in Jesus Christ. But rather than a time of salvation... It will be a time of judgment. As Jesus himself said, sitting on the side of the, of the Mount of Olives in the 25th chapter of Matthew, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There will be no mistake of Jesus and who he is. When he returns, my dear friend, now is the time of salvation. Not then. When that happens, it's too late.
Which brings me to the last triumphal entry. You may not consider this right off the bat, but it's very personal to me. I know it's very personal to very many of you. The triumphal entry when Jesus enters my heart. You see, I was that man Isaiah talked about back in the second verse. When he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, the light has shone. That was me in that darkness, completely lost, not really realizing how lost I was, but absolutely in the darkness of sin. And Jesus made a triumphal entry into my heart. And he changed it once and forever. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Corinthians when he says beautifully, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice something, that when Jesus makes the triumphal entry into my heart, it is not my triumph. It is not my victory. It is his. Jesus has told me and told you of another triumphal entry. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And and, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. He tells us about a kingdom, a total kingdom of peace where there is no sin, where there is no sorrow, where there are no tears, where there is no death, where there is no sickness. And he says, you're slated for this kingdom. Now, yes, the road that you may have to travel to get there is a hard one. Yes. He made it absolutely clear when he said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And the few of those are those who find it. But it is worth it. It is worth every minute of it because when we reach the other end, there is life and there is the city and there is Jesus at the gate. And he looks into my eyes to see if he sees himself there. To see if he sees the mark. To see if he sees the belief that I have placed in him. The very belief that he gave me. The salvation. The peace that he has created. And when he sees it, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But that is not my victory. When I enter those gates of heaven, it is not my triumphal entry. It is His. Because He won the right for me to be there. It is all about Jesus. It is what He did on the cross. It is His salvation. It is His redemption. It is the blood of His covenant. And so the great triumphal entry is when we enter the kingdom of peace, redeemed and righteous. And able to stand before a holy God. My dear friends, this is an invitation. All of the Gospels are an invitation. The Bible is an invitation from one end to the other. It's an invitation to believe. To believe in the one that God has sent. To believe in his plan of redemption. To believe that he has arranged for your forgiveness, for your atonement, and for your righteousness. And to put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And whoever will open the door to their hearts and open the doors to their mind and open the doors to their soul, I will come in and I will eat with them and they with me. Don't get caught outside the gates. And Jesus says, I don't know you. So I leave you with these beautiful words that David wrote. As you consider standing before those great gates. The ones that I read you earlier, they go like this. Lift up your heads, O gates, 
And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. He is the King of peace. And He has prepared for you, if you will open the gates of your soul to Him, a kingdom of peace. And David ends this with the word Salah, which simply means, you think about that. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, what amazing word you give us. The themes and the threads that are all through your Bible, hundreds of years in the making, so many different people putting it together. And yet, here we are. Millennia later, still turning to that word and still being blessed by what it says there. Lord, may you be glorified. May those who have heard this message, those who may hear it in the future, open the doors of their hearts and their souls to allow your, you, the Prince of Peace, to ride in on your donkey, to not make peace with them, but to make peace with God on their behalf and then intercede. As you have done, we give you such glory for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.